Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and we are continuing our series on liquid alts and alternative ETF. So very excited that joining me today is David Auerbach, who is Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors. David, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks so much. And thanks for giving me the khaki memo today. Glad we were able to coordinate our outfits. Yeah, we got, you got to look good, right? I mean, it's a video podcast, so we, we got to look uh, great for the, the YouTube audience. Um, so, so, David, I first heard about you and your ETF on Kathy Fetke's Real Wealth show. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes, by the way. I really enjoyed that. And I was I was just floored by your insights, but I was like, wow, this this guy covers you know the REIT beat. He has a liquid alt type ETF. Uh, so much insights on the on the you know uh, residential market and, and income from that. I have to get this guy on the show. So so thanks so much for for making time. Um, but before we jump into the ETF stuff, I want to learn more about how you got started in the REIT space. So so where'd you get started there? First, thank you for having me. And by the way, you're hired. I'm looking for a professional spokesperson <laughs> like hype man, and so you fit the role perfectly. So that's you great. got it. You know, I'm very lucky. Uh, I'm talking to you from Dallas, Texas. And uh, Dallas, Texas, when you think of Wall Street, Dallas is not one of the cities that you think of. You know, usually it's New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago. Those are the top markets that usually Wall Street people think about. And when I graduated from the University of Texas in 1999, uh, I had a job lined up to basically be a retail stockbroker, you know, mom and pop advisor. Um, My sponsor was a CPA who happened to rent some space from my father who was also a cpa but this particular cpa uh did uh investment practice he managed clients accounts while he was doing their tax returns and there was a a boutique broker dealer based here in uh in dallas at the time it was called hd vest which hd vest basically geared towards cpas who did uh, tax returns and investment practices for Mm -hmm. their clients so um at the time i got my licenses i spent several months with them and uh, when I went live, when I was ready to go out on my own, um, my boss sits me down and he basically lays out the world for me. Here's what life's going to be like for you, your mind during market hours. Okay, sure. No problem. Well, I got a phone call from a prospect who asked me to go out for lunch with them one day. And I went to the boss and I'm like, hey, this prospect wants me to go to lunch with them. Can I go? And he's like, no, you can't. And I'm like, Why? He's like, you're mine during market hours. If you want to network and prospect, that's on your time after market hours. But between 9.30 to 4 o'clock New York Central trading time, you were not to be interacting with any of your clients. You were my my guy. Yeah. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. How can you tell me when I can and can't go see a prospect? You know, networking and prospecting is a 24-hour day job. There is no time frame on when you can go and not go see a client. If a guy says they want to meet me at 5 a.m. for breakfast, I'm going to go see the guy at 5 a.m. for breakfast. If the guy wants to meet for lunch, you go meet for lunch. That almost guy, just that that sounds to me like even bad business. Like right, like yeah. I had a I don't really go out on Sunday nights, and yeah. I had a colleague that was in town this past week for a job interview here in Dallas on Monday, and I went and had dinner with him on a Sunday night. Like you don't put a time on when you go to network. Right. And I'll never forget, I sat there and I am and I basically said to my boss, who literally had just hired me, I just got my licenses, I'm green, I'm going on my own. I go, you're wrong. I go, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You're wrong. <laughs> He's like, what did you say? I go, you're wrong. Like, no, no, I'm going out to network with this guy. He goes, no, you're not. And well, P.S., the next day I got fired because I talked back to my boss. Sure. And here we are now almost 25 years later from that moment. And I still stand my ground saying that I was right and he was wrong. Like that was the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever heard. Anyway, when this all happened, you know, I'm here in Dallas and I'm like, great, now what am I gonna do? 
And this was back in the day when the newspapers used to actually publish daily classified ads. You know, if you want a job, you'd open the newspaper and read the classified section. And there was a little tiny ad. I'm not exaggerating. It's about this big, two line, you know, have series 763, call this number. Didn't know, called the phone number. And I was brought into uh, an office in the not so nice part of town. But what wound up being a institutional trading desk for REITs, real estate investment trusts. And the mm -hmm. firm was called Green Street Advisors, or at the time it was called Green Street Advisors, which was the preeminent REIT research firm in the country based out of Newport Beach. The trading desk just happened to be based in Dallas, Texas. And I interviewed and had a good meeting. And uh, my boss, who then became my boss, you know, on the day I got hired, she goes, look, I want to tell you something. Literally, this is her word expression. Kids your age don't get the opportunity that you're about to get. And I was like, how dare you call me a kid? I'm 22 years old. Like, I'm not a kid. Well, you know, shame on you. But it worked out to be the truest statement because 22-year-old uh, kids don't get offered desk jobs to go work institutional training desk jobs. Those gigs happen in New York and in San Francisco, not in Dallas, Texas. You must have really so, impressed them in that uh, in that job interview. I mean, right? look what, at the space. I mean, come on, right? Right? I mean, this this <laughs> it just this just screams knowledge. Yeah. But you know, this happened. I started on March second, two thousand, which was literally the official day that the Nasdaq crashed, going back to the stock market heyday. Mm -hmm. And for many years, my boss always said my biggest mistake was hiring you because the day you started was the day that the market crashed. She's like, if I hadn't hired you. Who knows where the markets would be today? And, you know, I think that was all funny, but, you know, it's amazing how a significant date history can, you know, last for so many years. So uh, in 2000, the REIT industry back then was frankly infantile compared to what it looks like today. Hmm. There weren't as many public traded companies. There weren't as many private companies. This was back in the day when everything was so tech heavy that REITs were kind of considered an afterthought. And in fact, that same day that I started, I remember a partner of mine came up to me and he was introducing himself and he's like, man, keep your resume fresh. I'm telling you, REITs are boring. They're not here to stay. We're all going to be out of a job within five years because who cares about REITs? And I still joke with that person many years later. I'm like, how's that five-year clock looking for you these days, buddy? <laughs> like, you yeah. sure about that? And so I really got to witness the growing up of the REIT industry. You know, where hundreds of companies came public, uh, investment advisors across the globe getting involved in the space. And, you know, really, just to answer your question, it was by luck that I happened to find myself working in the REIT industry. But through hard dedication and effort, it's how I've been able to establish my presence in the industry 20 plus years later. Absolutely. No, I, I love how, you know, honest you are that you just sort of, uh, lucked into it. But, but, but as you say, I, and I know you're very plugged into the read industry, uh, even aside from your ETF. Um, it, it, and you know, this is all this, this episode is part of our broader series on liquid alts and alternative ETFs. And, and it, it's cool that we get to talk about REITs because a lot of our audience, family offices, high net worth investors, RIAs, they're invested into REITs, both non-traded REITs as well as publicly traded REITs. So I know we have a ton of REIT fans in our listenership and in our viewership. So I have to ask about your newsletter in that case, the Daily REIT Beat. Um, first of all, awesome name, very catchy, the Daily REIT Beat. Could you all tell us more? All the REIT news that's fit to print, exactly. So tell us more about the newsletter. How do how do I subscribe? Because I don't, I'm not, I don't get this in my inbox right now. So it's it's actually it's kind of like a hidden beneath the surface type of product. The daily repeat was originally geared towards what I call the New York City portfolio manager, the guy who manages, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of institutional capital. But he's taking the train every single day in from Greenwich, Connecticut. And so when you're on that, you know, 637 a.m. train back in the day, you're scrolling through your Blackberry. If you remember your Blackberry. <laughs> yep. But the PM would have a thousand emails in his inbox and. If you're a portfolio manager, the last thing you want to do is spend your time going through thousands of emails. And so the goal of the note was basically to become an aggregation source, bring in all the major relevant press releases for now across the 180 publicly traded U.S. REITs that are out there, 
find all the major research reports, ratings changes, price target changes, performance metrics, uh, you know, little charts, basically anything that moves the REIT sector. But the real bread and butter of it, frankly, it's, it's the news article section. And it's changed dramatically over the past 15, 16 years that I've been doing the note, actually probably a little bit longer than that. But, you know, ideally it used to be with so many news publications that are out there, both hard print, soft print, online, with so much data that's being thrown at investors every single day. My job is to try to what I call level the playing field. And here's an example. Um, Avalon Bay is an apartment reads across the country. They've got a presence in the Northeast. Let's say there was a fire at one of their properties that they were under development, Trenton, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Bloomberg, nobody's picking up on it. But like the New Jersey Weekly may have a, a flash article about, oh, hey, this property caught fire last night. It's demolished. Well, you know, I used to surf and I still do, but I used to surf like literally 100 news sites every morning at like 5, 6 a.m. Eastern calling all these news publications Every major metro newspaper, every major commercial real estate news source, Globe Street, CoStar, commercial property executive, you name it, and try to link to all of these article stories. So that when if somebody be like, hey, what's going on with Avalon Bay today? Oh, did you see the story out in Trenton, New Jersey about the apartment that burned down <laughs> last night? Nope. Well, if you read my notes, you would see that. So we really what we try to do is we try to bring all the information into one, you know, one central location. So, again, going back to what I said earlier, it doesn't matter if it's Cohen and Steers and the biggest real estate investors in the world or if it's what I call grandma and grandpa who live in the villages in the retirement community in Florida. But they could open their inbox at 8 a.m. Eastern or give or take a few minutes, read this publication and have just as much news and information as the New York City portfolio manager, the guy that's managing billions of dollars of institutional recapital. Um, so it's headlines, it's ratings changes, it's performance metrics, it's graphs, it's news articles, but it's a daily publication that goes out to several hundred folks across the globe. We publish a weekly edition as well, which again, culminates a lot of the stuff from the daily publication, but also we bring in weekly index performance metrics. So we cover um, all the REITs in the S&P 500, the mid-cap 400, the small-cap 600, the Russell 1000, the Russell 2000, the REIT closed-end funds, the REIT ETFs, and the REIT mutual funds. So we're talking you know, hundreds of lines of data of performance metrics, short ratios, dividends. But basically, again, just to try to provide a database of all the REIT stuff that's out there. And now, the, now to, to answer your question, how does one get? Well, that's the cool thing. Since people are listening to you here, they will have access to my contact info, hopefully. Reach mm -hmm. out to me. We would get them added. Um, the, the product has kind of evolved over the past several years. Uh, it is a subscription-based product. Uh, we are moving it towards, the, towards our ETF research platform. So there's going to be kind of like another evolution of it as we uh, armadaize it, as we're calling it. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a subscription-based product. Uh, um, publication and we can discuss that on an after uh, thought basis but it does not have a website we're potentially building one out the reason being again it was geared more towards the institutional guys the institutional traders the institutional investors but as i've as my career has kind of shifted over the past decade plus i've realized that some of the retail minds are just as sharp as some of the institutional players that there's guys that sit there eat breathe sleep dream bathroom 24 hours a day the read product just as much as some of the read guys uh, institutional read guys do and so that's why we you know we've noticed a big interest from some of the retail or high net worth individuals um for the subscription service well you know you don't need to justify not having a website or anything like that like whenever i hear about these under the radar newsletters it just piques my it just like makes me more interested like, oh, you don't even have a website. Well, it's kind you of, of all people, Andy, since you're public, since you're invested in both the public and private, you will. I'm. I will get you added after this, but you will definitely see value in the publication again, especially on the weekly basis, because mm -hmm. it really provides a great high level of what's happening, what do the stocks look like, and you can kind of go through it very quickly and see, you know, some of those trends that we're trying to follow. ADVs, average daily volumes. How are these things trading? What's the stock doing over the past? quarter, past month, past year, whatever it is. So, you know, I know we're going to get into that conversation, but the takeaway right now is that 
a lot of these high quality REITs are trading at deep discounts to net asset value. So I, I have to ask though for the the new. So it sounds like it covers whole lot of REIT stuff, uh, maybe the whole universe. But does the newsletter cover non traded REITs as well as publicly traded REITs, or is it so? More if there's if there's news stories around regarding them, yes. But I don't do performance tracking measures of the non traded REITs, and I mean there's a whole separate discussion as to why for that. Mm -hmm. um, it's very easy with the publicly traded players, especially in this right. day and age of transparency. And there's so much information. I mean, I have a Bloomberg. I've got constant news hitting me. And all if you saw my launch tag, you'd like to be a blah, blah, blah. you know. I've got so much information that's bombarding me. It's my job to again be that filter so that I can try to put together a daily publication that the end investor reads. Now, there are some days that the content is very light. You know, when the news machine is pretty quiet. Mm -hmm. uh, there's days like today where we had four REIT debt deals, um, uh, six companies announcing their year-end property, you know, year-end summary recaps, uh, a preferred deal was announced, a couple of ratings changes, like today was a pretty big note. And then come earnings season, come quarterly earnings season, I go in and I cover every single company's earnings. I will put in bullet points from every single press release, provide links to the actual release. So, I mean, during earnings season, there's days that the note could be 20, 30 pages long because we're put, because I'm putting that much content. And that's the other thing. Everything that's put together, it's done by me. It's not automated. I literally put together every single publication every single day. And so whatever you see, it's been done by me. I mean, it's again, I call it a 24 seven note because I'm always working. So it reminds me of the, the Drudge Report or like back in the day, this was probably 10 years ago. It's kind of the, the, the one one guy curating this stuff with with a, a maybe not a huge audience but an audience that has a lot of financial leverage it, it sounds i like. definitely have a captured audience especially yeah. when it's you know when i have c-suite executives you know ceos that make bukus and bukus to money and more money that you know they could ever dream of and where people come up to me like i just want you to know this is the first thing that my firm my guys have to read every single day they're not allowed to come into our morning meeting without reading your note first and I used to have at my old work computer, unfortunately, I didn't take it with me, but I used to have like a three-page long testimonial sheet from all of these REIT CEOs and institutional investors, you know, praising me about this, this thing is a, you know, a godsend. Like I won't even do my day without reading this thing. And so it's nice, ideally, to go back to that example, you know, the, that portfolio manager on the train thinking about those thousand emails. I need to read this press release. I need to read this upgrade, downgrade report by Evercore ISI. Oh, and there's these two great stories in the Wall Street Journal. Boom, I've gotten rid of 975 emails out of his inbox. And now that PM can focus on what they want to do, which is trade the portfolio. And more importantly, raise assets, talk to investors, be the face of the fund that you're supposed to be. Absolutely. So, okay. So you obviously have your finger uh, on the pulse of of the REIT universe. It, it sounds like uh, it, it's it's like wired into your your mainframe. Which uh, is great. So, you know, this is a question that comes up again and again. We recently had our Alts Expo event in December. Uh, I I moderated a panel there. We asked a question to the panelists. Got got some interesting answers. This this is coming up again and again. So I'm not going to dance around it. I'm just going to ask it. I want I, I want to know your opinion. Because we cover non-traded REITs here on this podcast, but we also cover publicly traded REITs. I mean, honestly, the, the two interact, right? Sometimes you'll see publicly traded REITs go private. Um, and as an investor, you know, you're looking for value. So in your opinion right now, you know, in, in January 2023, where's the value? Is there more, is there potentially more value in the publicly traded REIT world where some of these REITs are trading at discounts? Um, um, or, you know, do you think it sort of depends on the fund compared to the non-traded REITs? You know, how do you see this, this issue that, that keeps coming up again and again? It's a loaded question. It's a great, great question. Love it. I would say it's a little bit of both, but I'm not going to lie. I'm biased. I'm a publicly traded REITs guy. It's how I grew up in the business. It's what I know better than anything. I will tell you that don't take it from me. Take it from every Wall Street shop that's out there. There's enough publications that are talking about it right now. The publicly traded REITs are trading at deep 
deep discounts in that asset value where you can buy some of these companies. I don't want to exaggerate, but 60, 70, 80 cents on the dollar where fundamentals for a lot of these companies have not changed whatsoever. Operations remain very strong, but the stock market has not rewarded performance because basically everything has been thrown out over the past year performance wise. As far as non-traded REITs are concerned, there are some fantastic vehicles that are out there. I am not here to tarnish any particular entity like Blackstone or Starwood. Blackstone and Starwood are two of the largest commercial real estate owners on the planet, run by very, very well-respected management teams. I have the utmost respect for John Gray, Steve Schwartzman, Barry Sternlich, all, the, all of those players that are out there. But... I think it's important for all investors. And again, it doesn't matter if you, you know, are a $100 Robin Hood investor out of college or you're an ultra high net worth investor with $100 billion in the bank. It's important that every investor does their own research. You need to know what's under the hood of the car, what's driving the engine. And if you don't know what the company, what's um, what properties are owned in the non-traded REIT, if you don't read the fine print and the boilerplate language on the back of the in the back of the prospectus that's 10 pages of legalese if you don't read the fine print and know what you're getting into then bad things could potentially happen and that's something i know that we'll we'll address uh through this episode but i think from the beautiful thing about the publicly traded reits and i Everything I say comes from the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trust. That organization is called NAREIT. They are the parent of the REIT industry. They are the spokespeople for the REIT industry. Why I mentioned NAREIT is they have an amazing education platform. If you want to learn REIT 101, REIT 101, how a REIT works and what it means and all the different stories that are out there, first place you should go is REIT.com, REIT.com. That's the home of NAREIT. But NARI, as I mentioned this, when they talk about why publicly traded REITs, a lot of the reasons that they hammer on kind of show why the non-traded REITs can kind of catch you in a bind. Number one is transparency. The publicly traded REITs have quarterly conference calls, quarterly earnings press releases, daily mark-to-market with uh, bid-ask spreads on the screen during market hours. You can buy a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, whatever it is, you can transact in these REITs very liquid, especially for those guys that are in the S&P 500 or the small cap four. <clears throat> Remember what it takes to be uh, added as a constituent of the S&P 500. Think about some of the quality of these companies that have been around for generations that are in the S&P 500. It's almost like making the Dow 30. I know it's changed since in time. But for you to become a constituent or a stalwart in that index shows the amount of confidence and respect that the industry you're, you're has. You're up there the with, with Coca-Cola, Berkshire Hathaway, and <laughs> exactly. Chevron. You know. Yeah, I, I get it. So does, so I'll does, use an example. There's a publicly traded apartment REITs called Mid-America. MAA is the ticker. Mid-America has been in the S&P 500 for many years. The CEO has been there for 28 years as the CEO. <laughs> These companies... You know, using MidAmerica as the example, have seen every single economic cycle over the course of his tenure, mm -hmm. prosperity to recession. <laughs> They've seen <clears throat> wars, 9-11, COVID. These CEOs have seen every economic cycle that's out there. Why I mention this is that because they've seen so many different economic conditions, they know when to go on offense. They know when to go on defense. They know when to deploy capital. They know when to refinance their capital. And if you use COVID as a good example, think about all the industries that were affected by COVID and how these executives have learned from what's happened. So the next time that the next event happens, they know how to respond accordingly. Case in point. If you use 9-11 as an example for us on Wall Street, previously, Wall Street firms used to have what we call disaster recovery offices. 
God forbid your office burns down. Just because the, your office burned down in Dallas doesn't mean they're going to close the New York Stock Exchange on Monday morning. So what are you going to do to make sure that you're up and running on your desk on Monday morning? And we used to replicate our desk at an alternate location, pay a second rent, have a second computer, second everything that we literally never used. It was money thrown down the drain just in case this happens. What happened during COVID? Everybody had to go to their disaster recovery offices, right? Because nobody was working in the office anymore. Do you know what became the new disaster recovery office? Your laptop. That was your new disaster recovery office. And what's happened is that this is an evolution that now what we used to call the DRO has gone away because work from home is here to stay. We've known how to respond from what has happened. And the next time that next thing happens, you know, what do the apartment operators do during COVID? They didn't kick tenants out. They worked on tenant relief programs. They made it so that their tenants would have a place to stay and they worked out rent arrangements with them. Okay, what are we gonna do the next COVID? God forbid the next event happens. Well, here's what we did last time. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't work. So let's mm -hmm. make sure we do these same things the next time. And oh, by the way, we've been thinking about this in case this ever happens again. Now we can implement this new program to complement it. So, you know, we're, we're, these, these management teams are learning from previous cycles how to be better operators going into the future. And that's why we have this utmost respect for a lot of these management teams, again, because they've, they've been doing it for so long that it's very rare that something's going to be thrown at them where they don't know how to respond. And COVID was a game changer because mm -hmm. that impacted every single industry and every single person. You know, a good example is office buildings. I mean, frankly, office buildings are a perfect example of what's happened through COVID. Previously, everybody worked in an office building. I used to work right. in an office building. And, you know, we had to deal with traffic and all that nonsense every single day. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't work in an office building anymore. And... Many of my friends in the big, big cities, you talk to them and yeah, they're in the office, but it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You right. know, they're not in the office Monday, Friday. I was in New York for business. I've been in New York a lot, but I was up there for meetings a couple of months ago. We went, we were going out for lunch and my boss calls them like this place. They're only open for lunch on Tuesdays because Tuesday is the new Monday in New York City. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm running a fund of office REITs these days, you know, I don't know what office REITs look like in the future compared to what it looked like five years ago. So, you know, these, this is a constant sector that's REITs in general constantly going under evolution. Another good example, five years ago, there was no such thing as cannabis REITs. Now there's several cannabis REITs that are out there, both in the production, the development, warehouse side of it. Um, a decade ago, there was no such thing as tower and data center REITs. Like, what was it? What was a tower? You know what I mean? Like cell phone towers we're referring to data centers back when things were very you know infantile with the internet and now we have all these different sectors so the question is you know again it's just like you'll hear me mention many times today where's that puck going what's the next sector that's out there what's the next story that nobody is talking about well right now one of the stories that's really nobody's been talking about or it's, it's been picking up steam is the non-traded REITs and you're talking about a sector that's been around for many many years I mean non-traded REITs have been around for a long long time there's right. some good ones. There's some not so good ones. And so the takeaway here is read the cover, look under the hood, know what's driving the engine of the car. Yeah. And I, I think that's good advice, whether we're talking about uh, a non-traded REIT or a publicly traded REIT. And, and obviously with, with the non-traded, um, you know, as an accredited investor, as an advisor, um, it's it's your responsibility. You have to take ownership to look under the hood, to to do your due diligence. But, you know, you mentioned one thing, which was obviously we're seeing discounts in the publicly traded uh, REIT universe, um, you know, where, where you mentioned 60%, 70%, 80%, you know, a book value, I believe. Um, is there a number, you know, that, that you would view as like a normal discount where, where it, you know, if the market overall moves back to, to X discount to book value, that then at that point they're, they're, maybe fairly valued. Like obviously you can always own REITs, you know, you're always going to be looking for the right REIT, but, but it seems like your point is the sector as a whole or the, the REITs as a whole are, are undervalued right now. Is there, is there any formula that, or, or number that you'd point to as like, well, this would be normal. This would be what I would expect as like a kind of a par value. Well, first of all, I think it's on a sector by sector basis. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> some stock, some sectors are more in vogue and uh, um, uh, command higher valuations versus other sectors. I will say, historically, a lot of the REITs have traded at premiums to net asset value, yeah. especially like some of the industrial REITs that are out there, self-storage, again, some of these in-demand sectors. You know, New York office used to be a very desirable asset because they're not building more land in New York is what they used to say. Um, and so because of that, most of the REITs have usually traded at a premium to NAV. Some of them, if they traded at a discount, it was like, why? You know, oh, this thing is yielding 10%. That's a, you know, it's a, it's a home run. If something has a 10% handle, it's not a home run. You know what I mean? Like you have to, it's changed over the years. Well, and, and to that point, David, that to that point, so if par is actually par, right? Your point, if a lot of these historically have traded premium, uh, and, and I guess now I think a lot of investors are almost like being conditioned to expect them to trade at a discount. Is that even sustainable though? Because we've seen some REITs that were publicly traded recently that it seems like there's more that are... I. I may have my data mixed up, but I, I thought I'd read that there were more turning private than there were going public over a certain period of time, which was actually like a sea change for the yeah, read industry. I, and I and I and I believe that there's no doubt about it because it doesn't seem like we've seen many over the past several years as many public to publics as we have when we've had Blackstone and some of these other vehicles or sovereign wealth funds able to take uh, entities private. You're absolutely right on that. And what's um, the incentive? Like, what's the incentive to IPO if I IPO and then and then I'm going to trade at a discount immediately? I, why would right. I even IPO? Well, it used to be what's the you know what, why does a company go public? Well, it's, it's so that management can get out, right? So what's yeah. what's your end game? Well, it used to be the end game was either and it still kind of holds true today. <clears throat> either another publicly traded company buys us or Blackstone buys us. It used to be Blackstone was like I always used to say. Blackstone is going to be either the last REIT standing, they're going to be the last man in the room, or they're going to cause the biggest commercial real estate collapse in the history of mankind. <laughs> and Blackstone's always at that table for that conversation because, again, of the pools of capital that they've raised. But in the same breath, you've got, look at all these sovereign wealth entities that are getting into the space. Look at all of these sovereign wealth funds that are entering the single family rental space. So again, housing, residential housing. When it's not just JP Morgan and Bank of America, but it's government of Singapore, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, BlackRock, Blackstone, literally every single type of investment um, allocator wants to get in the space again, because where's the puck going? Well, we're talking about residential here. And so does the world, does, does the United States need more office buildings? I don't know the answer to that. I don't do think we need so. more. <laughs> do we need more? In, do we need more indoor malls? I don't know. Yeah. But we know we need more residential. No matter how you slice and dice it, you know, we are looking for the latest and greatest, the newest technology initiatives, uh, you know, green energy, uh, uh, carbon neutral properties, whatever it is. That's what that's what tenants want, especially now when you look at the uh, the demographic that's graduating high school, going into college. It'll be in the job market five to ten years from now. What do they want what will they want as a tenant the mm-hmm. same thing that fast forward because we have senior housing in our portfolio i think you and i are close in the same age without guessing the age game but let's put it this way i'm sorry for all this coughing i do apologize i get so animated that i just work myself up <laughs> i don't know when the last time was that you went to a senior housing property where you went and saw somebody at a nursing home or anything like that and the reason why I mention that is the senior housing product that exists today will look nothing like the mm-hmm. senior housing product that you and I will live in tomorrow. And I mean it from both a surface level as well as an operations deeper dives perspective. On the surface, what have we grown accustomed to that we don't really see in properties today? Well, <laughs> start on the obvious. Hardwood floors, LED lighting modern fixtures usb ports high-speed internet this that a lot of those properties are not equipped for that today Hmm. and so this is an industry that's literally going to be demolished and rebuilt (laughs) a good example is 
And I love bringing this up because even though it's not residential, it still kind of plays into this. You've heard of companies called Hilton and Marriott. Of course. You know what they do? They they own hotels, right? They run a sure. hotel room. Did you know that both Hilton and Marriott at their corporate headquarters have what they call an innovation lab? And this innovation lab is the hotel room of the future. Hmm. Well, the last time I was in a hotel, which is pretty much every other week, to bed, to bathroom, to dresser with a TV on it, uh, and a desk with a chair and a sitting chair, right? You know, like a little lounge sitting chair. Sure. What does that room look like 25 years from now? Well, not that I know anything, but it's going to have a bed, go to a bathroom, it's going to have a dresser, <laughs> yeah. TV on it, the desk. But they're basically saying, what is that consumer going to want 25 years from now? And they're trying to develop that hotel room, again, where that puck is going, so that when that time comes, we're there. Look, we already have it. Look, we've been, we've been doing this for 10 years now. Yeah. So I think what you're noticing is that a lot of these operators and owners are trying to build that product for the 10 years out consumer. We know that we don't have enough housing inventory to satisfy the next generation of demand that's out there. We don't have enough modern apartments to satisfy that next generation of renters that's coming to market. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, residential is a perfect industry that of all the other sectors that are out there in the world of real estate and REITs, at least the one, one story that continues to play out is residential. We know what that looks like and we can get more into that. But, you know, we're focusing on, again, rental income. Apartments, manufactured housing, senior housing, and uh, single-family rentals. And so, yeah, I, I, no, no problem. I, I want to talk about uh, the residential space. So, obviously, that's as a sector. Obviously, you're, you're, uh, you have a lot of interest there. And, and specifically now, I'd like to dive into house uh, your ETF. So that's the read ETF from Armada ETF Advisors, and that ticker is H A U S. Right. So the, that's how yes, the res, it's the residential REIT income ETF. That is correct. That's, so what makes house unique? What makes this uh, ETF, you know, this REIT ETF, you know, unique and, and appealing for investors? Sure. Um, and it's a great question. And it's it's I love asking answering this question because it never gets sold. The founder of Armada ETFs is an owner operator of apartments up and down the East Coast. And. Our founder works with several of these apartment REITs. And then when you're an owner operator of any type of property class, you know what your property is worth. You know what the property across the street is worth. You know what the new guy down the street who's got the newest product on market, what his units are worth. This is a sector that pretty much everybody knows everybody. And as a result, my founder went to his advisor during COVID and he's like, look, I want to sell my whole portfolio of securities and I want to buy a pure play residential REIT ETF. And the advisor was like, oh, that makes sense. This is your day-to-day job. This is what your family does. You know this business. You work with these companies. Great. And the next day, the advisor calls him back and says, well, that doesn't exist. And my partner's like, what are you talking about? There's all these residential real estate ETFs that are on the market. What do you mean? And that's what goes back to what we were talking about, doing your own due diligence. Know what's under the hood of the car. Hmm. Well, all of these residential funds that are out there all have some kind of what I call a rub to it. One of them leads with self-storage REITs. Self-storage REITs are a great sector. I mean, there's six publicly traded companies. They do a fantastic job. (laughs) But for the broader sense, residential, excuse me, self-storage is not residential. No, it isn't. Um, and I mean, even from like an income or, or valuation, you know, cap rate co- perspective, th- those are going to be different sectors, like, you know, significantly it, it, different. Ab- different comps, different everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another one leads with a couple of the healthcare REITs that are also in our fund, but they have them way up on the stack and they're exposed to hospitals, medical office buildings, some stuff that would be considered non-residential so wait are these um, are these one, other again, are, are these other uh, are, are these other etfs are these are these marketed as residential reit etfs or are they just etfs yes. that hold REITs? yes okay 
No, their market is residential real estate ETFs or residential re- ETFs. That's absolutely correct. Now, and are they tracking? To... Are they tracking indexes that in the indexes is yes because is they're pass, they are passing so they create an index that is correct. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Go on. One of them has <clears throat> like Home Depot and Lowe's and Restoration Hardware and Home Builders and you know it's like it's a housing ETF. It's an all encompassing. Oh, well, I see. We wanted to take a different approach. We yeah. wanted to focus again because we, my team is REIT experts. I have a REIT CEO. I have a REIT analyst. I have REIT portfolio managers. We have a team that's basically been in the REIT industry for 150 years, give or take. That's all we know is REITs. And so we want to apply uh, apply our REIT knowledge to one specific sector starting out. And that way we could focus on Really, the idea of the fund was based on, off of a COVID thought of where are people moving across the country and which of these REIT segments benefit from this relocation. Case in point, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Dallas is one of the hottest housing markets during COVID because, among other statistics, one out of every 10 people that relocated to Texas came from California. So if we had, I'll just throw a random number out there. 25,000 people that moved from California to Texas, but yet we only had 5,000 homes available to them. You know, what happens to all the other people? Well, they're going to go back to the market and try and bid on a house, Mm -hmm. or they're going to go rent an apartment or a single family rental. So (laughs) as we were going through this, we had this epiphany that, look, there's 3,000 ETS that are on the market. There's a lot of props that are out there. Mm -hmm. I don't understand a lot of the products that are out there. If you can't explain it to me, I can't invest in it. And if there's one thing that everybody understood, look, I'll put, I'll put you on the spot. Andy, what do you and I have in common? And it's very simple. We go to sleep with the roof over our head every single night. We, Whether I rent an apartment, I own a house, or I rent a house, I make that property my own. And we started out saying real estate is personal, you know. Gas prices are up. Great. The rent's due next week. Um, I can't afford this. Great. Your rent is due next week. That rent payment gets paid every single month. And so we were focusing on that income from that rental payment. In a REIT structure, it's even better because a REIT is basically just a tax-sheltered vehicle that it's a tax entity these companies are set up as a REIT and you have to pass all of these qualifying tests for you to become a REIT. Right. But once you qualify, then basically 90% of that net income is passed through to shareholders in the form of a dividend. And it's so, tax advantage, right? So we're not paying the, the double taxation. Exactly. So it, it sounds like, so this ETF, if I understand correctly, it's actively managed. Correct. So, but it's it seems to me like maybe there's two separate issues here. Issue number one, it seems like there's a, a a hole in the market or or a lane, I should say, even for just an index that is pure play residential REITs without. There is no such thing. There isn't. There is correct. That does not exist. Okay, but then you you kind of took that that idea that well, there's a hole in that space, but then you also wanted to add in the active management to, um, to to sort of uh, I guess bet on demographic trends and correct. And, Exactly. Where are the where are the people moving to? Because as a result, if we know that Raleigh, Charlotte, Nashville, and Tampa are the biggest rent earners or rent collectors, well, then we could position our portfolio towards those publicly traded companies that have that big exposure there. And ideally, what's going to happen is then that elevated rent payment, a portion of that goes into your pocket in the form of dividends. That's what we're focused on. Is that all of this rental income that's being generated by these companies is being passed through to shareholders in the form of di- form of dividends? Yeah, and you know, like you said, you know, talking about investments, if if you can't explain it and an RIA or a fiduciary can't sort of understand what it is uh, very quickly, then it's it's probably going to struggle to succeed in the marketplace. So how's the how is the reception been to this uh, REIT ETF? Because it seems to me like there was a Probably, probably demand for it. Kind of a, a, I don't know, silent demand, but probably a lot of people were looking for an ETF like this, right? Well, it's 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 both funny and sad that you asked that because it's really it's been a, it's been a tale of two different stories for us. 
Okay. It's our first few months when we launched and then everything that's happened since then. Because when we launched, the timing was, we were the only IPO in the country when we launched the week of March 1st of uh, 2022. Uh, and that's because the Russia-Ukraine crisis had just started to unfold. Mm. And then uh, interest rate hikes started, inflation comments, recession, you know, all of these broad um, economic conditions started kind of being thrown at us that, you know, at that point, you know, kind of things, it didn't matter what you were doing. Everything was being thrown out with the bathwater. Sure. And my job is to focus on fundamentals. Okay. And so when I'm having these conversations, I would say, look, I can't control my ETF stock price. I can't control my constituent stock price, the underlying companies in our fund. I can't control their stock price. But here's what I can control, how we weight the portfolio and who's in and out of the portfolio. So I would go back to a person. I'd be like, okay, forget REITs for a second. Give me your fit. Don't tell me, but picture your favorite Wall Street company that's out there. Is it Apple? Is it Tesla? Is it Microsoft? Whatever the company is, Mm-hmm. Keep this in the back of your head for a second. Okay. That company that we're talking about right now, at the end of the day, you, the investor, want them to do four things. Literally, you want them to do four things. i got to figure it out. Okay? It's very simple. If your company is doing this, you're in good shape. You ready? Number one, grow your revenues. You want to see a company continue to grow their revenues. Top line, always going up. Mm-hmm. Number two, how about the bonds, the net income? You want that to keep going up as well, which leads to number three, that dividend keeps going up. A raised dividend is, a, you know, the safest dividend is the one that just got raised. Number four, which kind of goes with all three, is grow your guidance. Grow your annual guidance. Show that you are growing consistently. Well, most of the REITs, especially some of the residential guides, have done all four of these things. They've grown their revenues, they've grown their profits, they've grown their dividend, they've been growing their guidance, but yet the stock prices aren't reflecting those strong fundamentals. And the guidance the guidance would be, like one thing I was thinking as you were talking through those would be like the debt level, like responsible debt level. That would be reflected in number four, the guidance. Correct. Or like I would say like, you know, hey, we're guiding our uh, earnings per share this year of FFO, funds from operations or adjusted funds from operations. Uh, In 22, we did $2 to two and a quarter. In 23, we're forecasting a 10% growth. We're saying 225 to 250. Right. And as well as the dividend, I guess, because with it, you know, if you're able to pay that dividend, that shows that you have cash flow, right? So it's not- Exactly. Yeah. Correct. And so what I'm saying is, is that Though these companies were mostly doing these things across the board, mm-hmm. the stock prices weren't uh, uh, being compensated for that. The investors weren't being compensated for the good fundamentals that these companies were operating it. Yep. So it's our job to say, look, <clears throat> here's what you're, here's what CNBC and Bloomberg and all these networks are not telling you because it's not as fun and sexy, as exciting as the crash of Bitcoin. Or what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter and Tesla? Like, that's not going to draw eyeballs. Remember, I'm focused on that boring left side, what I call the boring left side of the portfolio, the 5 to 15% weighting of that portfolio. doesn't matter who you talk to, but pretty much every allocator says 5 to 15% should be in REITs and real estate. I always say REITs are boring. Slow and steady wins the race. REITs are the tortoise and the tortoise and the hare of your portfolio. Yep. But Bitcoin and Tesla and Kathy Wood ETFs and all that stuff, go fly and do all the stuff that they're going to do over here and let just slow and steady hang out here and earn income and, and dividends off of the operations. Let yeah. And as, as David, as you've alluded to, you know, we have a housing unit shortage of, you know, depending on who you ask, five million or, or whatever the number is. So there's that macro trend. That sort of underlies, you know, it, it almost is is a, a a moat or or a margin of safety, I guess, investing in this asset class. And then, you know, real estate. A lot of times, investing in it, it's typically that illiquid investment. You know, d- depending on how you invest into real estate, you might get an illiquidity premium for investing in an illiquid vehicle. But right now, these REITs are trading at significant discounts, so it's like you're able to buy value. And it, 
you get the liquidity for free. It's like, I don't even care about the liquidity. I wasn't expecting the liquidity. Uh, but if you believe in the thesis and you have the ability to buy it at a discount, uh, then then it, it's basically that allocation, that 5 to 15%, that sounds about right, but it just offers better value probably than it almost ever has historically. Especially since we know, I mean, again, it's going to happen because it can't last as long. The private real estate values are about to correct. About to correct. There's just no way it's possible, no matter how you slice and dice it, that the private, excuse me, the public trade to reach are trading at a discount, and the private guys are saying, "No, we run it better. We're trading at a premium." Well, the problem is that their valuations are three to six months old. They're going off of old comps versus what the public guys are doing every single day, where their numbers are reset. And so, what's going to happen when some of these private guys start seeing their NAV numbers come down a little bit because the world is reset around them? And the problem. You know, if you've got $100 billion in the bank, kudos to you, please give me a call. If you've got $100 billion in the bank, but $5 billion of that's locked up in one of these non-traded vehicles, private vehicles, you're not losing sleep. You're okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you've got $2 million in the bank and you've got a couple hundred grand or 500 grand locked up in one of these private vehicles and your spouse passes away and you need to pay for the funeral or something happens, you can't get out. You can't access liquidity. Whereas if I want to sell a, a, a billion dollar position in Prologis, I'm going to move the stock, but I can sell a billion dollar position in Prologis and be out like that. Right. And and I mean, I, I totally agree in that sense. And that's one thing I love about REITs is you have great products and, and you, you know, you've said that you're a little bit biased, which is, which is for everybody's a little bit biased, but there are great non-traded REITs. There are great publicly traded REITs, and it, I mean it's a great product because it's tax advantaged. And um, you know, if if you're an ultra high net worth investor or family office, as you said, you can deploy, you can afford to be illiquid with a huge portion of your portfolio, possibly the majority, the vast majority of your portfolio. You can afford to be illiquid with, but at the same time. Um, you know, ETFs like house and a lot of, you know, other ETFs as well as the REITs themselves allow really any investor to participate. So I know we're, we're running short on time, but, you know, given that you're so plugged into this world of REITs and ETFs and, you know, I would call it liquid alts, you know, this, this whole universe, do you have any predictions for the next few years, either in the world of, of REIT ETFs or maybe REITs themselves um, you know, or, or just any trends that you think that, you know, our audience should, uh, be keeping. In I mind. have lots of predictions, obviously. Okay. The question is how many become right. Um, we are going to see a lot more REIT ETFs come to market. You know, we are dealing in an industry that the mutual fund is going away. Mutual funds are dying. We're seeing this big conversion of mutual funds to ETFs. Um, we're, in fact, talking to a couple of different guys to potentially maybe help them do that, convert their mutual funds to ETFs. So investors... Um, that 3,000 number is probably going to double in the next few years, if I had to wow. guess. Wow. Um, okay, that's prediction th- number one. 3,000 ETFs. We're going to double. In, in, within uh, the next, I would say within five years, if not sooner, we're going to have at least five to 6,000 ETFs. Because I think all those mutual funds are all going to go away and convert. Yes. You heard it You heard it here first, folks. Okay, that's prediction one. Okay. Um, I think you know the battle is to find the next sector um you know we've had cannabis we've had towers we've had data centers we've had infrastructure we've had postal you know what's that next make or reach type sector that's out there um how does blockchain impact the REIT sector how does blockchain help the investor that lives in malta or cape town south africa access the u.s REIT market through their existing platform that makes sense so i think we're going to see um this world open up even more it used to be that REITs were for grandma and grandpa because of the income and now with so many REIT funds that are out there and the metaverse you know for the next generation and some of these other things that are out there REITs are very commonplace you know, I always tell investors, invest with your eyes. What do you mean? Well, 
Okay, let's start with this. And this is a sophisticated audience, so they probably already get this. But, you know, look at the shopping center that's the intersection of Maine and Maine. Is that parking lot always full? What about the grocery store that's at that shopping center? Is it always full? When you drive by at night, do you happen to notice that maybe like a sign or two is missing a light? Is it flickering? You know, does it look like it needs a new coat of paint? Um, what about, then I go this step further. Andy, I'm going to give you a trick question here, okay? Um, have you gone to Starbucks for a cup of coffee recently? Oh, about a year ago. It was probably the last time. You don't drink you don't drink coffee? I drink a ton of coffee, but we make it at home. So <laughs> how about um have you gone to CVS or Walgreens to get a prescription? Oh yeah, all the time, unfortunately. Five kids, so we're somebody's always needs. And you remember that you remember that shopping center example that I used? Have you gone to go, have you bought groceries recently? Yes, I have. Well, in every single one of those examples, you've uh, you've interacted with a REIT. REITs hit investors 24-7. You can't go from point A to point B without being hit in the face by a REIT. Whether it's a billboard that you see driving down the road, the apartment property, the self-storage property, the mall, the shopping yeah. center, REITs are a daily facet of our lives. And so as a result, when I say invest with your eyes, you know, oh, that parking lot's full. Who owns that? Oh, it's Kimco. What else does Kimco own? Wow, they own this, this, and oh, they own the shopping center that I heard of, you know, right down the street from my where my parents live. And <laughs> yeah. then that kind of gets that snowball rolling down the mountain. Sure. Okay. Well, I I certainly think, you know, your career has been fascinating, you know, kind of walking us through how that started. It sounds like your career kind of grew up with the reed industry in a way, because obviously you know REITs uh they're not like some some small thing anymore right they're they're a mainstay they're they're a pillar of of so many portfolios and no that five-year clock continues to go on yeah it's, it's not <laughs> yeah. going anywhere Look, exactly it's it's, it's it's its own s p asset class of the financials it's a standalone asset class on its own now that's why you're seeing i think a proliferation of investors and investment funds that are getting involved in the space you yep. know, you can get very thematic when I say thematic, you know, I just want to invest in let, let net lease. I just want to invest in towers or data centers or, or residential. You know, it is getting more thematic. But again, it goes back to knowing what's under the hood. Where do they own the properties? What do the properties do? Are the, you know, is it going to be around 10 years from now? I don't know if, you know, what if office reads are going to be around a decade from now. I truly don't. And I'm a big, I'm a voice to the read industry, but I sense the concern of what's happening with some of these office streets. Whereas I know what apartments are going to look like five years from now. Now, I may not know what the apartment of the future looks like, a la this Fulton and Marriott innovation thing, incubator thing, but we know that there's going to be demand for residential from here to eternity. Let's be honest. Um, interest rates keep going up. That's great. You're going to keep renting that apartment. Uh, yep. Interest rates go down. That's great. That means that you're going to finally get that chance to move out into that first home. But guess what? That means that the next generation is going to go rent that first apartment for the first time. So there's, yeah. you know, apartments have been around for long before you and I were alive. And they're going to be around long after you and I pass. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, multifamily is as close to a sure thing, uh, provided you're using leverage responsibly. It's as close. You to said sure. it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, David, really appreciate all your insights on ETFs, on REITs, um, you know, being very generous and, you know, giving, giving us, you know, just your transparent thoughts. I, I love it when, you know, people say it like it is, tell us what they really think. And and I also, you know, the, the ETF that you all have launched, the house ETF, I think it's a fascinating product. I think a lot of our viewers and listeners will be interested in it. So that being said, uh, where can they go to learn more about this ETF and about Armada ETF advisors? So thank you for that. And uh, first of all, you know, we want to educate. I want to, you know, if this fund's for you, that's great. Let's talk. If this fund isn't for you, that's great. But let's talk about REITs and why REITs should be in your portfolio. So I recommend everybody go check out our website, Armada ETFs or Armada ETFs. That, sorry, dot com. Breaking things in the office. That's not good. Um, go to armadaetfs.com. It's Armada ETFs. Check out our insights tab. We have lots of blogs and research published on any relevant topic about, you know, how does inflation impact residential REITs? What about recession? What about uh, uh, geopolitical unrisk? Whatever it is. But we have a lot of research focusing on why residential. 
In addition, we have several CEO constituent interviews where I've gone and sat down with the CEOs of several of our companies. And don't take it from me, take it from the CEO of these companies and why you should be looking at residential REITs. I'll give you an example. I mentioned that Mid-America CEO. Guy's done very well in his career. What keeps you up at night, Mr. CEO? And his response was very, very simple. How do I keep raising my shareholder dividend? Raising Mm -hmm. my dividends, what keeps me up at night? And that's great because remember, these CEOs, got a huge stock packages and compensation because of the REITs with their dividends. If that dividend goes up 10%, guess what? His quarterly bonus just went up 10%. So he is just as aligned as what I call grandma and grandpa who are in the villages who want to see this company do well. But check out Armada ETFS. They can reach email me at dhourback at armadaetfs.com. Always happy to sit here and talk REITs. Uh, if they want to inquire about the newsletter, they can shoot me an email. I'm happy to have that conversation as well. We are trying to be the one-stop shop when it comes to REIT education. Absolutely. And so I'll be sure to link to all that in our show notes, including, I just added a note to link to the insights section on your website. Uh, and Thank you're, you. also on, you're also on Twitter. I, I follow your Twitter account. So I'm going to make sure to link to the to Twitter account in the show notes as well. Um, so for our viewers and listeners, you can always uh, read those show notes at altdb dot com slash podcast david thanks again for coming on the show today andy thanks so much for having me this was awesome i really appreciate it that's it for our show today a huge thank you to you our listener if you like this episode please rate and review us on apple podcasts the alternative investment podcast is produced by the alternative investment database online at altsdb.com You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.